Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Why Though, a personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions. Why is this record in my collection? And is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. This is episode six, the Virgin Suicide soundtrack by Air. This album gets us just that little bit closer to getting into the real meat of the show. Not only is this our first very much non-punk album, it is also our first album not purchased by me, and there is going to be a lot more where that came from. And while I think the albums purchased by people other than my wife will end up being more entertaining for you, as we will see, even this album definitely leaves me outside my comfort zone in many ways. The album is by a band I knew very little about before I started working on this episode. It is in a genre of music whose stars are notoriously private, and it is the soundtrack for a movie that I have never seen and do not want to see. So I'm really getting thrown in on the deep end on this one, and that's what makes it fun. Now then, back in the late 2000s, probably 2006 or so, my wife Di was the cafe manager of a Borders Books and Music. We had not yet met at this point, at least not that we can remember, though it is worth saying that I worked at the Boston Market across the strip mall at the same time, but I don't think our paths really consciously crossed. In her role as cafe manager, she made the cafe into the only part of the store to turn a profit. She did this by entirely ignoring corporate guidelines in such a way that she was able to control shrink, while ensuring the employees had a supportive and healthy working environment. Needless to say, she was fired for a minor infraction, which tells you basically everything you need to know about why Borders ended up going belly up. The corporate executives liked to whine to the press about Amazon, but they were the ones that saddled a bookstore chain, a bookstore chain, with a mountain of unnecessary debt, neglected the ground management of the stores, and drove the whole structure into the ground. Much as I don't love their labor practices, Amazon is just the reef that the corporate hedge fund that owned Borders happened to run that particular ship into. But I digress. Amongst the very dumb things Borders did while Dai was there was the breathtaking decision to liquidate their stock of vinyl sometime around 2006 or so. Now, sure, Vinyl is kind of a niche medium, and the music sections of all the major bookstores were having trouble at that time. But the problem they were having was caused by shrink, in this case a euphemism for theft or damaged products. See, they were selling CDs for 20 bucks a pop, or more. This made the CDs too expensive for normal people, who resorted to streaming and piracy, while thieves had an extremely expensive and very small item that they could easily shoplift and sell for $15 on eBay or Amazon or whatever. While records can certainly be stolen, I am told many tales of such by uh, people from the olden days, it is, you know, harder than stealing a CD, which I can fit into my pockets. 
Records also had a growing cachet amongst the kinds of people who still paid for physical copies of music. And so, rather than emphasizing a medium that was hard to steal and by its nature could not be replaced digitally, Borders chose to liquidate their record stocks and make more room for DVDs, another easily stolen item that they were selling for $30 to $50 a pop. Some people are just too stupid to live. In any case, this is how Die got the Virgin Suicide soundtrack for $1. $1. I wonder rhetorically what Borders paid for it. Now then, Air is an electronic music duo from Versailles, France, which is a fancy way of saying they are middle-class college kids from Paris. Those of you who know your history know that during the Ancien Régime, Ancien Régime, idiot. Versailles was located way outside of Paris, but is today an affluent suburb that refuses to concede its identity to the metropole, sort of like Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Georgetown in Washington, D.C., or Westminster in London. In any case, it is something of a hub of the arts and music scene surrounding Paris. In the grand tradition of weird techno music, the two members of Air did not have a background in music. Jean-Benoit Dunkel, Jean-Benoit Dunkel was a math student, while Nicolas Godin, Nicolas Godin studied architecture. While doing this, Godin also managed to pick up the keyboard, bass guitar, guitar, vocals, vocorder, harmonica, samisen, koto, drums, and banjo, and that's just on this album. So you should not be imagining a couple of people making Eurotrash dance jams here. Rather, their music blends original sounds made with actual instruments seamlessly with electronic sounds, and sounds made by things that are not instruments but can be used to make interesting sounding noises that can be sculpted by electronic wizards into beats. There is a lot of precedent for this kind of thing that might not be obvious for those who do not move in electronic music circles. I myself only dabble, so take all this with a grain of salt, but there is a tradition within European electronic acts that starts with Kraftwerk, one of my favorites and an act we will definitely be getting to, but Kraftwerk in many ways were the Ur-Techno act, and they inspired people who did eventually give birth to Euro-Disco and Euro-Trash styles. But if you listen to Kraftwerk, you will note very quickly that they come at music from a very different place from their successors. Kraftwerk were arguably more influenced by classical music than by contemporary pop music. So while the rise of house music in Detroit and Krautrock in Germany would drive things in a pop-dance direction, People around Europe also began experimenting with slower musical styles that focused more on ambient sounds and allow for more experiments with the nearly unlimited canvas that electronic music can allow. This was particularly true in Bristol in the UK. By the time Air came along, this Bristol sound had transitioned into trip-hop which had become a regional and international phenomenon, with bands like Massive Attack, Portishead, The Doves, and arguably Stereolab being part of the furniture in this particular cedar room. Air released their first album, entitled Moon Safari, in 1998 to massive acclaim. Today's album, the soundtrack for The Virgin Suicides film by Sofia Coppola, was their second album, and they have since made several other soundtracks for Miss Coppola's projects. They have six other major albums, and a slew of remix albums, soundtracks, collaborations, etc., etc. This is how electronic music do. Even given the trip-hop genre setting, Air is notoriously weird. 
As a dabbling fan of the genre and of weird stuff in general, it is fair to say that I was excited going into this. One of the most notable things about electronic music acts is that there's a strong vein of skepticism when it comes to the kind of fame manufactured by the brand engine of the major record labels. Notably, I will call your attention to Daft Punk and Dead Mouse and the like, but even bands that are not as obsessed about avoiding having their faces seen, like Chemical Brothers or Massive Attack, are not exactly street-famous personalities or faces. I would be hard-pressed to pick any of their faces out of a crowd on the street, even though I love their music and watch their videos and, you know, listen to them all the time. But it's, it's just not that kind of genre. This skepticism is deeply refreshing, as everything involved in celebrity culture is exceptionally toxic. That said, it does make writing about the acts a bit harder and more mysterious. It doesn't help that most of the original promotional materials were in French. Et alors, tu ne demandes pas ton éditeur francophone qu'est-ce qui se passe là Je suis ici. Still, what I can glean about Air from the translated French Wikipedia page goes something like this. The two members of Air had both been very into music, but had to take a step back from it in college. Godin Godin was eventually pushed by a friend in the industry to put together some music for a project, and when that went well, he decided to make a serious attempt at making a career out of music. That's when he brought in Dunkel, Dunkel as a collaborator, and together the two built a studio that they described as terrible. Terrible. They wrote and recorded Moon Safari there, which they released initially through a Parisian record label that was able to get them local and then eventually international acclaim. They came to the attention of Sofia Coppola as a result of this initial success. Indeed, her original idea was to just use Moon Safari as the soundtrack for Virgin Suicides, full stop. They convinced her to let them write new music for the film, and put together the album fairly quickly. It was initially intended to be just framed around the movie, but by the time the material was delivered, the duo had ended up making an album's worth of songs that could mostly stand on their own. It is probably worth talking about the movie for a minute. The film is about a fictional suicide pact entered into by three young girls in a typical American suburb who were rebelling against highly overprotective parents. In the process, the movie comments on the intellectual bankruptcy of Americana, gender, the darkness hidden in small towns, and is also a general 1970s period piece. I have not seen it myself, as I am not a fan of psychological thrillers, and I find suicide to be a rather trite literary device. But Dai assures me that it is good, actually. That sounds more sarcastic than intended. I'm sure it is a good movie. It's just not going to be my cup of tea. So, how does the soundtrack hold up on its own for a person who has not seen the movie and will not see the movie? The first thing to note is that the album is entirely by air. This is a bit of a relief in this context. I do like soundtracks that are basically just big mixtapes, notably the Gross Point Blank soundtrack, but if I'm going to listen to an album by notoriously weird French techno wizards, I kind of want it to, you know, actually be by notoriously weird French techno wizards. A similar danger, in a soundtrack context, is that the music would be entirely designed around serving the movie, leaving me trawling through a bunch of stuff that's no good outside of the objectives of the film. This was not the case for the most part, but we'll get to that. There are, like, three songs on the album that seem to be very connected to the movie. The first track, Playground Love, is fairly different from the other songs in that it has lyrics sung by a person and is obviously built to serve the movie's themes of childhood love gone wrong. There is also the word Hurricane, which involves a spoken word piece over top of the music in which a younger-sounding woman delivers what sounds like a classroom presentation on, you know, 
the word hurricane. I don't know if this presentation is in the movie. It sounds like it probably is. Finally, there is the last track on the album, Suicide Underground, in which a male narrator, probably one of the boyfriends of the girls in the film, summarizes the plot of the movie over Ayer's backing music and reflects on the events. I'm fairly sure this is directly taken from the final scene of the movie based on my read of the synopsis in Wikipedia. Apart from those three tracks, which definitely stand out as different, the rest of the album is ambient and atmospheric, as one would expect from Air, but it does so in a way that probably serves the theming of the movie very well. As opposed to their breakthrough album, Moon Safari, which uses 70s-era French bubblegum pop as its starting point, this album uses 70s-era American psychedelia and British prog rock as its starting point. Think something like Kenny Rogers meets Pink Floyd meets Kraftwerk. This undoubtedly does a good job of serving the film, creating a mysterious and somewhat ominous atmosphere while keeping within the theming of 1970s Americana. I have to say, I was looking forward to some weird postmodern French pop music played on old bottles of Orangina, so I was a bit disappointed by the reality of the album on that level. All the same, the musical choices clearly make sense in terms of the movie, and is actually aesthetically fun on its own merits. There's a very wide palette of real instruments that creates a sense of authenticity and time and place, while extensive use of lush electronic production and boops and beeps keeps things interesting. The music is down-tempo and relaxing, almost, but manages to keep my attention and maintain this sort of atmosphere of ominousness. I have to say that as I get older, I really appreciate this in music more and more, it isn't easy to keep me invested in something slow and restful, but after 10 years of working a somewhat stressful job and overlapping family health crises, I no longer have the tolerance for 24 hours of balls-to-the-wall punk music like I once did. Sometimes it gives me a little bit of agita. At the same time, I still need my music to have some sort of energy or interest, so it can be a little bit of a balancing act. In this context, Ayer's music is, you know, an achievement. They have songs that are seven minutes long, where the main sound is just a few repeated boops, but they intersperse things like someone strumming a harp or playing a xylophone just often enough to make you feel like something is happening, and that there is aesthetic information being conveyed, even if it's somewhat low density. Lest you think this sounds deadly, such tracks are interspersed with more conventional songs with drums and bass lines that sound like pop music, and remind me of nothing so much as a Pink Floyd album. Sigh. But... Over all these different kinds of tracks, there remains a claustrophobic ominousness that verges on coziness in a strange way. This undoubtedly serves the movie very well, while also being a very interesting aesthetic effect. The interplay between claustrophobia and coziness is something that would not have occurred to me without this album, but they managed to convey this idea in tracks entirely without words, and the idea also is deeply entwined with the theming of Suburbia Gone Wrong. It's genuinely an artistic achievement of an impressive scale. To close up, I have a few extraneous notes. One thing that I did not expect to get out of this larger project was an evolution in my opinion on Pink Floyd. There is not a single Pink Floyd album in my collection. This was not a conscious choice per se, but it does make it strange how often they have come up in the project so far. In both Adamant albums and this one, there are clear musical influences from Pink Floyd, and I don't really like it. Now, before I lose all the stoners, I understand why other people like Pink Floyd, and I won't think less of you for doing so, but I'm just not a prog rock fan, and they sort of sum up why. I find their lyrics juvenile and poorly written, while the weird sound experiments they did, which should make my hipster heart go all a pitter and a patter, just kind of come off as boring and self-indulgent. 
Usually, though, I understand the attraction, and I'm happy to have Pink Floyd be considered groundbreaking, so long as, you know, I don't have to listen to it. But having multiple albums bring in Pink Floydish stuff, Adam Ant in terms of many of his song lyrics, and here in terms of some of the musical moves, it just kind of adds to my annoyance. But that's neither here nor there, and it doesn't really diminish my liking this album. Next note. Unlike some other albums I listened to recently, it really does pay dividends to listen to this record on vinyl. Much as it pains me to say this, this isn't always the case. For a band like The Adolescents, where the production quality is garbage and they are rather proud of the fact, you can listen on CD and you're probably not losing anything. And of course, as I mentioned last time out, the audio quality I achieved on my crummy Frankenstein's monster of a stereo system is good enough to show up all the spots where AFI used autotune after repeated listenings, so, you know, maybe you're better off with a CD there, too. But this album is so rooted in the feeling of the 1970s that analog ends up being a really important part of the atmosphere. Hearing it on vinyl definitely adds to the experience. There's a German word for the sound of a needle on a record where no noise is playing, but I don't remember it right now. But that sound can really add to the atmosphere of listening to records, and it is definitely adding to the atmosphere created by this album. This is so true that I actually think that if I listened to this on CD, they might have added that sound in in the background in some of these tracks. While I've not been able to really confirm this one way or the other, certainly the noise is more pronounced on some tracks than others, and when it's there, it really adds to the feeling of the ritual of listening to music on a physical object. The warmth and coziness of being in a room and doing it, and the slightly claustrophobic feeling that that sometimes entails. All of which, again, adds to the aesthetic experience. The album art is wonderful. The front cover is an absolutely gorgeous neo-Klimtian faux print work of a young woman in black and white whose face is mostly obscured by her thick black and white hair, and then red hearts, vibrant orange lilies, and set on a pink background. I'm sure the same image is on the CD, but seeing it in full size on the record jacket is almost certainly better. Of increasing fascination to me during this project has been my cat Duncan's reaction to these different records. I noted last time out that he seemed to really like AFI, as he chose to sleep on top of the speaker while the record was playing, which one would not really think, given AFI. By contrast, he does not seem to like air very much at all. He has dragged a kitty comfort blanket onto the floor, and is cuddled up on it as far as he can get from the speaker while still being in the same room as me. His ears are partially back, a look of slightly annoyed patience on his fuzzy face. Well, fear not, Duncan. This episode is now complete, and your patience is coming to an end. So obviously, I've enjoyed listening to this album, and I look forward to delving more into Air in the future. This is the only LP I have of theirs, so I won't be coming back to it this season of the show, but Die has two CDs of theirs that I've been enjoying along with this album as I've been writing this episode. That said, I don't know how much I will come back to this album in particular. While enjoyable, and a real artistic achievement, as I said, you have to be in a certain mood to enjoy this kind of thing. Claustrophobic is not usually something people use to describe a fun experience, and I've used the word multiple times today. That said, I am also definitely keeping this, and if you too are into atmospheric sound experiments and ambient music, or if you like music from the 1970s and want to hear a very strange version of that aesthetic, I would definitely check this out. I might even recommend getting it on vinyl if you can. Next time out, we will head back to Britain in the 1980s, and to Wales more specifically, as we examine the self-titled EP by Welsh folk punk band The Alarm. 
Things are starting to get nice and weird around here, and I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. Until next time, remember to hit me up on social media and let me know how wrong I am about Pink Floyd and psychological thrillers. And, as usual, I hope you find the answers you seek in your own record collection. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.